You're listening to the Department of Energy Joint Genome Institute's Natural Podcast, a podcast about natural products and the science and scientists of secondary metabolism. Hey there, welcome back for episode nine of Natural Podcast. This week, Allison and I talked to Roger Linnington from Simon Fraser University in British Columbia, Canada. This is the last of the podcasts we recorded in my hotel room at Simbi, or the Society for Industrial Microbiology conference that took place in January this year in San Diego. And that city is where I first met Roger when we were both postdocs at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. Uh, Roger was splitting his time between Bill Gerwick's lab and, and doing research in Panama through support from the ICBG training program, which stands for International Cooperative Biodiversity Groups. And it's this great program funded by the National Institutes of Health and the National Science Foundation to create international partnerships in developing countries for research into various aspects of biodiversity, of which natural products chemistry is one. So, I've always known Roger as an expert in natural product structure elucidation, but more recently, he's been leading an effort to build the Natural Product Atlas, or NP Atlas, a freely accessible natural product structure database, which is going to be just invaluable to the natural products community. Uh, It's a big international community effort, and I want to say thank you personally to everyone involved in making this happen. We had a really fun conversation with Roger about all this in terms of how to build international community collaboration and in thinking about the future of the natural products field as it relates to structure elucidation and genome mining and how we might start better connect those two things because I think that's ultimately what needs to happen if we're really going to understand the chemical diversity and chemical utility that nature has to offer us. I found this conversation really inspiring and I'm super happy to be able to bring it to you. You can access NP Atlas right now at npatlas.org and we'll have links to it in the show notes at naturalpodcast.com. Uh, I also just want to say thanks to everyone listening. Our download numbers keep going up, which continues to surprise and amuse me. I can't tell, of course, whether this is just the natural products community listening to itself talk or if we're finding an audience outside of just us. If you're new to natural product science, please let me know. I'm dying to hear from you. Toss an email to jgi-coms at lbl.gov. That's jgi-comms at lbl, which stands for Lawrence Berkeley Lab, dot gov. Or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're getting this and tell me why you're listening. But now, here's Natural Podcast Episode 9, our conversation with Roger Linnington. Hey, Allison, we're still at Simbi. Yay! <laughs> Simbi! <laughs> uh, we have one more interview to do at Simbi. And uh, sitting in, in the, the crazy hotel chair now is uh, Roger Linnington. Uh, Roger is a professor at, at Simon Fraser University, and uh, I have known Roger for quite a while. We met right here in San Diego at Scripps. Yeah, that's right. We were postdocs together in the mid-2000s, I guess. Um, <laughs> you were working for Brad Moore. Uh, I was working for Bill Gerwick as part of the International Biodiversity um, uh, Drug Discovery Consortium. Um, doing natural products, isolation, structural elucidation type work. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, that's right. I want to talk about the that. Was it? What's the the, the letters IPDD? Uh, ICBG. It's the International <laughs> ICBG, Cooperative right. for Biodiversity Groups program. A really amazing program funded by the National Institutes of Health. All right. Why don't you tell us a little, little bit about that? Uh, yeah, yeah th- this know. was an amazing program. So, so uh, the program is still running, um, and its premise was to partner 
US institutions interested in natural products with institutions in developing nations to do natural products-based drug discovery, predominantly in diseases of importance to each host country. Um, it was built very much on the foundations of um, sort of cooperative um, and collaborative science. Um, it was designed to ensure um, equitable benefit sharing if any discoveries were made that were of value to the, the host country. Um, right. And it had a huge um, mission to perform um, technology transfer and infrastructure development uh, in, in these host countries. So, so, yeah, it was an amazing program. Um, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of really great academics came out of that, too. Many academics came out of it. Uh, many scientists were trained on both sides, on the U.S. side and on the host nation side. So there, there were many of these um, with, with different groups. Our one was uh, partnered with uh, institutions in Panama. And so I had this very unusual postdoc where I went to Panama um, straight out of my graduate school uh, and uh, was given a small lab in the National Science Center there and ran this sort of semi-independent research program um, as part of my postdoc. It was great fun and did lots of fun science yeah so let's let's rewind in time a little bit and uh what what before that what what got you into natural products in the first place so i was originally trained in the uk i did my undergraduate degree at the university of leeds and there the focus was very much on sort of synthetic organic chemistry and 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 sort of classical divisions in the chemistry landscape so i was very much an organic chemist and i thought that i would become a, a synthetic medicinal chemist yeah a lot of us start that way yeah it's a, it's a common track um at least the, the chemistry oriented people yeah the at that time the uk didn't have a particularly strong emphasis in natural products certainly not in the school that, that i did my undergrad degree in um but I worked, um, as part of the undergraduate degree, there was a chance to do a year in industry. Um, and in many ways, that was the best part of my undergraduate training. I got to work for Pfizer, who at that time had a big um, facility in the south of England. Um, and that facility included both European scientists and North American scientists. And I saw a very different viewpoint between those two groups in the ways in which they approached scientific problems. And so that sort of opened my eyes to the idea that you could go internationally to do the next stage of your training and that there might be more to be gained than just subject matter um, by making that change. So I went to the University of British Columbia uh, in Canada to do my PhD uh, and there I was exposed to many more themes surrounding natural products and so that sort of really captured my attention and, and so I worked for Ray Anderson there and, and had a very enjoyable time learning about natural product science. Yeah, great. So uh Pfizer was doing natural product-based drug discovery then? Uh, they did still have a natural products program, but again, in the European side, we didn't hear much about that. Yeah, so right, right. that was very much medicinal chemistry. My job was to make a molecule a day. Um, and one of the things I wanted from that experience was the chance to see what the industrial life was like. Um, and... I think I learned that I'm more of an academic than an industrialist, <laughs> but, but that's good. I mean, I, I think that, that one of the many good things that comes out of those kinds of training experiences is the chance for you to test the waters and, and see what it's, really, what it's really like behind the scenes. And so, um, yeah, I benefited enormously. I'm not sure how much Pfizer benefited from my employment, <laughs> but I, I got a great deal out of it. I, I'm curious to, to hear a little bit about what you, what you saw in the different perspectives um, that people trained in North America brought to the UK? Yeah, it's difficult to generalize, of course, but mm -hmm. I felt uh, overall that the, um, 
British approach at that time was quite linear, that, that people would take problems and they would take a sort of foundational starting point and they would work linearly through all of the possibilities until they reached some conclusion about that problem. Whereas the North Americans tended to be um, slightly more out of the box, that they would approach the problem sometimes from very um, unexpected orthogonal perspectives. Hmm. And sometimes one of those approaches would work more, would be more successful and in other times the other one would. But I had come from a very linear background, like the training I had received had been quite linear. And so I liked the idea that it was valuable to read broadly and think broadly about problems and, and to be open-minded about other ways in which you might ad- address or solve those problems. And so I hoped that I might get more exposure to that um, here in North America. Yeah, yeah. And it, it does sound like your career has incorporated a lot of diversity. I mean, going to Panama as well and and then and also... Canada and yeah. yeah there's been geographic diversity I'd say perhaps more um, interestingly there, there's been quite a lot of thematic diversity so when we first started out as a research lab we were also quite focused on um, finding bioactive molecules and doing medicinal chemistry doing um, development of projects on a project by project basis and the more time has gone on the more we've become interested in sort of systems level approaches so rather than asking one question about one class of molecules or one particular target we're now very much more interested in how we can build tools which will let us see the whole landscape of natural products so you know for example what are all the compounds in a sample set and how are they distributed Um, and that's been a, a sort of evolving trajectory i think you know most scientific careers are like that in that they they follow an arc and so yeah definitely there has been a a strong evolution in terms of the way the group thinks and the the kinds of problems we're interested in tackling yeah that that is the uh the the main reason i wanted to get you in the gaudy hotel chair today is to (laughs) to sort of talk about that that direction and things because um i think there's there's a lot of this going around now which which i haven't seen in natural products a whole lot uh, in the past, this sort of idea of uh, there's a lot of data out there, let's put it together. So uh, you have, uh, at least you're the corresponding author on the uh, NP Atlas effort. That's right. So I was, uh, I-, I know there's a lot of people involved in this. It's a, it's a big community and you should name them all right now off the top of your head. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I don't know that I can list them all. So there are, you're right. So this, so this is a big um, community-driven collaborative effort that we've put together to try and create an open source database of all known microbial natural products. So if you think about natural products science as a field, um, we have arguably been studying microbial natural products in an ordered way for perhaps 80 years. Um, And in that time, we have discovered many thousands of different natural product classes and tens of thousands of members of these classes. Um, And yet there is no central open repository which contains all of that information. In other words, we have invested an enormous amount of time and resources and, and, and money um, in studying this field, um, yet we don't really know what we know. The information is scattered throughout the literature. It's uh, across a huge array of different um, dates, um, journal titles, languages, yeah. uh, uh, fields. Uh, it's, it's really a bit of a mess. Um, and 
um, many of the system-wide tools that people would like to build would greatly benefit by knowing what's already known. So you, know, you can imagine if you have a particular sample and you don't have such a database, then if you want to know its identity, you really have no idea. You have to start from ground zero again in order to solve what might be an already known um, compound. Um, however, if you had a comprehensive list of all the things that have previously been found, the first question you should ask is, is it one of these? And there you're going from a question which is essentially boundless to a question which is very well bounded. Um, and so you, there are plenty of um, strategies one can use to compare existing data to uh, a new data set, um, but you have to have those data in a reasonable format. So that was our main motivation. Right? So it is al an altruistic effort in that it is a database which is going to be, which is now shared with the whole community uh, in a completely free and open manner. Right. But it is also self-centered in that we want that data set in order to do some of these projects on our own. And, and our motivation for starting the project was that we felt hamstrung by, by not having that information available. Um, and so that's sort of what what motivated us to do it. Of course, it's pretty complicated because what you're effectively aiming to do is to graze across all of the published literature for the past hundred years and identify every article which describes the discovery of a microbial natural product. Right. Um, and that's a pretty tall ask. Um, so this has been a big community effort. We've had tremendous support from lots of researchers around the world, um, uh, Europeans, uh, North Americans, uh, uh, folks from South America, all, all over the place. Um, and uh, we would n never have been able to do this without that sort of consortium effort. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's maintained by us, but it's built by the community. And I think, I think that's something we all should be quite proud of, actually. Absolutely. Uh, how do you get started on building a collaborative community like that to, to do such a big job? Yeah, so we were a little overwhelmed by the project at the beginning. It wasn't really clear how best to begin. Um, and so in the end, we did it in several stages. So we started out internally by um, making a list on the whiteboard of the top 50 journals that we thought were most likely to contain natural products um, articles. Sure. Um, and then we um, acquired the titles and abstracts for all of the I uh, articles from all of the issues for those 50 journals for uh, varied, something like 20 years. And then we, I forced the lab group to take a week off from lab chemistry research and to go through all of these abstracts and titles and to fish out data about new molecules that have been found. Um, and that initial work was very labor-intensive, um, but it gave us a basal training set we could use to build more sophisticated tools because now we had a very reasonably large set of articles which had been manually create, curated for whether they were or weren't about the topic we cared about. Um, and that gave us about 12,000 molecules, and that was enough for us to build a basic database structure and a basic um, web interface, and we could then show that to collaborators and say, this is a prototype. If you will help, we could do this in a more sophisticated way. Um, and, and that was enough to capture people's attention and, and uh, convince them it was worth putting their time into. What was the, the role of potential collaborators? Like, what did you pitch to them that they could do? Um, so we, we made a, a fairly mercenary trade with the collaborators. <laughs> so uh, we used those initial um, analyses we'd done by hand 
in order to build a machine learning model that would look at all of the data that's in um, PubMed mm -hmm. and pick out articles which the system considered to be likely to be about microbial natural products. Mm -hmm. um, and then we used a bunch of um, text mining tricks to try and extract all the relevant data from each title and abstract uh, and find structures that went with those. But we needed somebody to look at each one of those and curate mm -hmm. the information and make sure that what the um, algorithm had done was actually accurate. Mm. And so we told people that if they would curate a thousand entries, that that would earn them um, authorship of the study when it, was, when it came out. And that gave us enough coverage that we could ensure that most entries were looked at more than once. And so mm. the quality, the data quality was reasonably high. Mm -hmm. um, and... Um, yeah, it gave it gave us enough enough pairs of hands to be able to to be able to get through all the all the entries. And how many entries are there now? Uh, there are currently just over twenty five thousand compounds in the mm -hmm. database. We don't know exactly how many there are to find. Yeah. Um, conservatively, we estimate perhaps forty thousand. Um, the best we can do is take sections of the literature we've already curated and then go through them manually to see what we missed. And from that, you can get some kind of projection for what's yet to come. Mm. Um, so um, there are lots of tricks we can do to try and backfill the legacy data. Um, some of that's quite difficult because um, styles have changed a lot over the mm. years. So the, the mm. ways in which people write have changed. And so that means that your um, text matching machine learning model does right. better with more modern articles than it does with older articles. Mm -hmm. um, some of the older articles aren't digitized um, and so that makes them hard to access. Um, the articles, the structures in older articles are uh, presented in quite unusual ways sometimes. Um, and some of the really early work, it took a long time for, I mean, structural elucidation was extremely difficult uh, before the advent of two-dimensional NMR and high-resolution high mass spectrometry. Um, and so some of those stories percolate through the literature for a long time before um, researchers reached consensus on structural identity. Mm -hmm. And so those stories can be very laborious to curate because you end up having to sort of walk through a lot of historical literature until you find the place where the structure was first um, proven. Yeah, you wonder how many of those old structures are just flat out wrong too, right? Yeah, so we do have an ongoing effort to try and capture um, reassignments. Mm -hmm. um, and many of those come from uh, efforts with total synthesis or re-isolation. Right, right. Um, so that um, is something that we are trying to put more energy into now. Um, ultimately, we would like to capture all the instances of total synthesis because I think not only will that draw in the synthetic organic community, but also it means that if you have a compound or a class that you're really interested in, um, you have immediate information about whether or not any of the members of that class have been subject to synthesis and whether there are routes which can be used to produce analogs or to do development. And I think those kinds of things can really help people to um, prioritize projects and do project um, selection. Um, so, yes, there's lots and lots we can add. So, in natural products, having a large data set of structures uh, is obviously very valuable. Um, from my perspective... Uh, JGI has a large database of biosynthetic gene clusters and biosynthetic gene cluster fragments and all kinds of other crazy things. Um, what do you think uh, the community needs to do to start connecting that data? So I think this is a really 
fascinating question. I, I think it's one of the unsolved questions in natural products. Absolutely. If, <laughs> if I want to be provocative, um, I have noticed that many talks about biosynthesis start by saying organisms contain many gene clusters, but very few of these have known molecules. Right. You know, th- therefore, right. biosynthetic gene clusters represent this untapped and cryptic world of new chemistry which we can discover. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, as devil's advocate, I could start um, most uh, natural products discovery talks by saying, we have found all these compounds and there are no gene clusters. So That's right. a- either biosynthesis uh, researchers are not very good at finding compounds and chemists are not very good at finding gene clusters, uh, or there is a, la- a high degree of overlap between those two data sets which we have not yet recognized. Um, so, it, it's one or the other, right? It's one or the other. <laughs> well, I'm all possibly some hybrid of the two, uh, likely, yeah, likely yeah. somewhere in halfway between. in between. Yeah. Um, but at the moment, you know, most gene clusters have no product, and most products have no gene cluster. So either both of those pools have to increase in size dramatically, or there has to be a significant collapsing of that overlap. Uh, I suspect the the latter is more likely to be true. Um, people have studied chemistry first projects for 80 years from a huge array of different perspectives. They've, they've studied it from the perspective of biofouling, from chemical ecology, from drug discovery in every possible disease uh, target area, um, using uh, an enormous array of different isolation strategies and different source organisms and so on and so on. So right. the idea that you know, greater than 95% of the chemistry remains unfound seems unlikely to me. That's, I mean, that's a, that's a, that's my controversial okay. personal perspective. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I think what's probably more likely to happen is that we will improve our ability to make relationships between structure and gene cluster, and and that we will see now fairly soon a fairly rapid collapse um, in the unknown fraction on either side there between both gene clusters and and products. Um, how we do that is still quite tricky. You can't easily do it by forward prediction from the gene cluster, not to the discrete compound um, in many cases. In many cases. Sometimes you can. Yeah, Sometimes but, you can. But, but also it's a question of labor too, because you know, I, I, I spend a, a good chunk of, have spent a good chunk of my life uh, staring at gene clusters and trying to understand what the, the chemical products are. And Sometimes you get pretty close. Uh, but uh, there isn't enough time probably in uh, <laughs> the rest of my lifetime, anyway, to to any, anywhere tackle that. So so you got to do it computationally, right? So so where do we start with that? Well, I think one of the areas where we need to continue to invest effort is this question of um, uh, chemical constitution. So um, that question would be much easier to answer if we had a ready mechanism for describing the chemical landscape of any sample set. So if you have 100 organisms and you ferment them under one set of conditions each and you extract them all, you end up with some pool of natural products. And if we could describe um, even the number of unique molecules that are in that set and how those unique molecules are distributed within the set, then it would be a lot easier to start to make connections or at least hypotheses about the relationship between a compound or family of compounds 
and uh, corresponding gene cluster or family of gene clusters which have sort of co-occurrence or, or, or um, right, know, right, 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 um, that are found in that way. And so, I relatively simple changes like that, I think, will make a really big difference in the way that we're able to approach these kinds of system-wide problems. And it's not just constitutional analysis that's a problem. We need um, corresponding improvements in our ability to recognize whether or not gene clusters which don't look that similar actually produce similar products. So I think we need advancement in sort of both areas. And and I suspect that no single change will, will resolve the problem. But that stepwise changes on both sides of the fence will mean that at some point the whole thing suddenly collapses and becomes very much more straightforward. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, I'm much more familiar with the sort of chemical analytics and, and um, um, identification side of that problem. Yeah. Um, and I see all sorts of exciting area, new developments and new developments in mass spectrometry, hardware, software. Um, new developments in NMR methods, uh, ultra-fast methods for acquisition, things like this new smart technology um, from UCSD, which is um, uh, doing um, pattern recognition in in, uh, comparing spectras to one another. Right. Um, And um, community-based resources which provide large, high-quality, well-curated data sets upon which to base those sorts of tools. So I think you need all three of those, really. Um, And from there, um, yeah, eventually we'll, we'll know the answer. <laughs> how long will that take? Obviously, it depends on how many people are working on it and, and the right people in the right situations. But uh, what, what do you think? I'd be surprised if it was still a problem in 10 years. I think that the field, I would say that the field of natural products is undergoing a really exciting renaissance as um, tools and uh, opportunities in other research areas come to bear on the field of natural products. I feel that natural products science perhaps lagged in innovation um, during the tail end of the sort of structure-first individual compound discovery phase, um, and that there was a bit of a plateau there where many groups knew how to do isolate and elucidate type projects, uh, and so... Um, now we're seeing this sort of new generation of, of tools come along which provide a much broader view on, on natural product science, and I think that that's opening up opportunities across the board. Uh, and because of that, and because of the rate at which that's changing, um, I think that it's a really exciting time to be a natural product scientist. It's, it's, it's like the Wild West. It's really great. <laughs> what do you think about uh, changes in technology um what, what changes in technology need to happen in order to uh, really start unifying all this data? Are there, are there changes, or is this something we can, you know, launch into tomorrow and just roll up our sleeves and you force your grad students to, to work on it for another week? <laughs> or, or, or do we need some kind of specific advance to, to, to start working there? I think there are certain areas where we need... Um, centralized efforts at unification um so some obvious uh, scenarios um, and some some of these have already been um or are un- already under development so uh, a really great case in point is uh, the mi big database which describes sure. all of the biosynthetic gene clusters that are in the um, uh, published literature so that 
Um, so that's run by Manix Medima and his team at uh, Wagenen. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have been extremely successful there because they brought together a consortium of researchers in the field and they were able to define standards for the minimum information that should be reported um, and to develop a schema by which you can report that in a reasonably standard way. Um, and then the MIBIG repository is able to accept that standardized data um, and they put a lot of uh, energy behind the scenes into making sure they keep on top of the literature and that they capture gene clusters as they're published and en- curate yeah. and enter those which are it's not deposited. Invaluable resource. It's sure. an amazing resource. Yeah. And it's a really touchstone example of how um, consortia like that can build tools which are of high quality and very stable. Some data types are easier to manage than others. Um, NMR is actually, or both NMR and mass spectrometry are a little bit more difficult to handle. The number of variables is quite high. Mass spectrometry in particular, the number yeah. of different ways in which you can analyze the same sample is, is um, frighteningly large. <laughs> um, and so there are two problems there. One is that um, even though your molecule may be deposited in a repository, if the acquisition conditions are very different than the ones under which you analyze your sample, then the comparison may not be that relevant. But also the amount of information you need to capture and the um, ways in which you choose to standardize that, are, are that's quite tricky. Um, and again, industry has put a lot of effort into trying to sort that out. Um, but it means that it remains quite difficult to relate databases and data sources of different types to one another, which is ultimately what we need to do as a field. What we'd really like is... Uh, a central repository which has all the structures and their corresponding gene clusters and their MS and MSMS data under a huge range of different acquisition conditions and their NMR, raw NMR data, and their bioactivity data and so on and so on. I mean, that that data set does not exist and will be hard to do. I think we can do some of that in pieces Mm -hmm. um, and and some of those relationships are already being built. Um, But it is going to be the challenge of our age i think yeah um, yeah definitely an aspirational goal and and something that needs to happen but um yeah. yeah but it will be quite difficult i would say the the other place where we're going to see um large and wholesale change is in data analysis strategies so we've seen in the last 15 years um enormous advancements in hardware both on the nmr side and the mass spec side so the single biggest advancement in NMR was the development of cryoprobe technology and the improvement in sensitivity of those uh, instruments. Um, and that's been followed by developments in pulse sequences and improvements in the ways in which you acquire data. Yeah. Um, mass spectrometry has also had an enormous uh, sort of sea change oh, yeah. uh, in terms yeah. of the hardware. So it, when I was a grad student, the mass spectrometer was in the basement behind... Uh, um, uh, 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 what do you call those things? Like a counter. So when I was a grad student, yeah, the mass spectrometer yeah. was uh, it was behind a counter in the basement, and it was run by a dedicated team. It was the size of a hotel room, and it was always <laughs> broken. Uh, <laughs> I remember, yeah. <laughs> and and now we have uh, uh, our mobility QTOF instrument in the lab, which our undergrads run. Yeah. Um, and the difference there in reliability, accuracy, sensitivity. All those things have changed beyond all recognition. Mm-hmm. Um, what has not yet kept pace are um, data analysis strategies. I think everyone who does, particularly mass spectrometry, if you do a lot of mass spectrometry, everybody will bemoan 
the challenges associated with data analysis and particular, particularly with jumping between instruments or jumping between methods. Um, right. That, that there is an enormous amount to do there. I think there is... I, still, I think we still throw away a huge amount of valuable information in mass spectrometric data sets because of our inability to extract all the value from them. And I think that's where we're going to see big change. Yeah, just to follow up on that, like how, uh, what other data analytic approaches could people use? Like how could people innovate in that area? Well, I think that, again, when I was a graduate student, the mass spectrometer was the last thing you used. So you would... Um, purify a metabolite, you would solve its structure by NMR, and when you had it clean and you were pretty sure you knew what it was, you'd get a mass spec in order to verify the formula and, and to satisfy the requirements for submission to the journal. Um, now, because of the ready availability of data from mass spectrometers, it's being used as a, as a sort of front-end tool, so it's being used as, as the first stage in discovery. There are so many different ways that you can look at even a simple mass spectrometry experiment um, and derive information from it. Um, so the um, accurate mass, the isotope distribution, the uh, collisional cross-sectional area if you're doing ion mobility, the um, uh, retention time if you standardize those, the MSMS or MSN fragmentation patterns. Um, the isotope, in principle, the isotope patterns of those fragments, depending on how you acquire the data, you, the data goes down and down in layers and layers and layers. Um, and this comes back to this question about whether you know about the um, existing canon of structures or not. So if you have that huge array of different pieces of information from a single mass spec experiment, and you have a fixed pool of things which are known, then the question becomes, is this metabolite any of these previously known metabolites? And there is enough information there that I think we ought to be able to do quite a good job of answering that. It requires... Um, development in lots of areas. We would like to do a better job of understanding um, gas phase reaction mechanisms. We would like to do a better job of predicting MSMS spectra, um, you know, so on and so on, interpreting fragments, all this sort of stuff. Um, so I think there, there is um, a huge opportunity there, um, but it requires developments on the software, on the technical side, and also developments in basic science. I think we don't know enough about gas phase chemistry yet um, we don't know enough about fragmentation mechanisms and, yeah. and, and prediction of those um, the way those things work um, and so I think there are opportunities across the spectrum from those who are doing very fundamental research at the sort of basic building blocks of how mass spectrometers operate and, and how analytes are um, uh, produced right through to applications and how you use that information in the most efficient and the most successful way um, so, uh, yeah, there's room, there's room for everyone. So if I can just see if I understood that uh, improvement in, in data analysis would look like just having a better understanding of how these, uh, uh, I guess, the mapping of the, the masses and the ions to structure in, in a fundamental way, like that we don't understand so much about the chemistry, about the way that these molecules can break down um, to interpret the spectra, uh, and that innovations in that area would be really helpful. Yeah, I think that's I think that's exactly right. I think um, understanding what happens to molecules during the process of analysis 
mm-hmm. um, is an area where we're still not we don't have a perfect understanding um, and then there are practical issues as well we are still not particularly good at differentiating um, real analytes from noise and uh, thinking about best practices for experimental design you know, which is the best instrument for a particular experiment uh, is it worth doing replicates what do you do about variations in concentration how do you um, design the experiment so that you have the clearest possible picture of the chemistry that you're trying to analyze. I think that mm. at the moment there are still a very wide array of different approaches and I suspect that we will start to see a sort of collapsing of those approaches as time goes on as some strategies mm. win out as the most accurate and the most informative. Mm-hmm. Um, and it will be interesting to see that development. I don't know where that's going to go, but um, mm. it will be interesting to mm. see what happens. So I guess the last thing I wanted to just ask is... Um, now that uh, you know you've you've got all this infrastructure built, uh, surely there was a reason that you did this in the first place. So, what are you going to use all of this to to actually do in your research? Or, or are you an infrastructure guy now? No, no. Uh, well, <laughs> I, I've never known you to be. I, uh, you we know. have now made a commitment to supporting the infrastructure, which we will have to continue. Which <laughs> is also a bit daunting. Um, but no, we absolutely built it in order to to pursue fundamental questions in natural product science. Right. Um, I, I would love to know, you know, um, what are all the natural products that we can possibly find? It does the building of this data set allow you to say anything about what the scope of natural products diversity is likely to be in the environment? Um, can we uh, use this broad-scale view of the chemistry in order to start to make predictions about environmental roles of these compounds? Can we um, perform studies such as looking at the distributions of different classes of compounds? So, for example, if you see class A, do you always see class B and class C? And if so, do they play some complementary role in the environment? So you can imagine using the data in a very broad sense like that. Um, I could could envisage projects where you say, okay, I see this group of organisms has this set of molecules, and we know that to be successful in the environment, organisms need molecules that do these kinds of things. And I know that some of the molecules I've identified do some of these jobs. Therefore, some of the molecules which don't yet have jobs must most likely play one of these other roles. So if we're still missing a siderophore, we should look carefully at these as being candidate siderophores or um, for cell, cell signaling or for you know, other, other roles like this. So I could imagine that once the set is complete, you can start asking much broader questions about how chemistry, how chemistry is diversified in nature when it is not diversified and why? Mm-hmm. And where are the holes? You know, which bits of chemical space are you never going to find in nature? And are any of those bits of chemical space relevant to human health? Um, you, know, you can imagine that compounds found in nature are produced by organisms for their own benefit. But that's not necessarily relevant to many of the diseases that we seek to treat. So it may be that molecules which are natural product-like, which would actually be very beneficial in hard-to-hit target areas, 
are never going to be found in a classical natural products program because they are selected against because of their lack of function. So knowing about the full sweep of chemistry which is out there allows you to identify obvious holes and then use semi-synthesis or synthetic methods in order to target and go after these sort of new areas of chemistry in a very directed way, which is still inspired by nature but maybe builds on what nature has to offer. So... Lots, lots to do. <laughs> Roger, <laughs> those are fantastic questions, and uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to you generating the answers. <laughs> well, let's see. It. Uh, I think it's going to be a worldwide effort, uh, but uh, it'll be fun yeah, to see how people use the data in different ways. All right. Thanks so much for talking to us. It's my pleasure. Thanks very much. I'm Dan Udray, and you've been listening to Natural Podcast, a podcast produced by the U.S. Department of Energy Joint Genome Institute, a DOE Office of Science user facility located at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. You can find links to transcripts, more information on this episode, and our other episodes at naturalprodcast.com. Special thanks, as always, to my co-host, Allison Takamura. If you like Allison and you want to hear more science from her, check out her podcast, Genome Insider. She talks to lots of great scientists outside of secondary metabolism. And if you like what we're doing here, you'll probably enjoy Genome Insider too. So check it out. My intro and outro music are by Jazzar. Please help spread the word by leaving a review of Natural Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or wherever you got the podcast. If you have a question or want to give us feedback, tweet us at JGI or to me at Dan Udwary. That's D-A-N-U-D-W-A-R-Y. If you want to record and send us a question that we might play on air, email us at jgi-coms, that's jgi-comms at lbl.gov. And because we're a user facility, if you're interested in partnering with us, we want to hear from you. We have projects in genome sequencing, DNA synthesis, transcriptomics, metabolomics, and natural products in plants, fungi, and microorganisms. If you want to collaborate, let us know. Find out more at jgi.doe.gov user-programs. Thanks, and see you next time. 